This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. We are in Acts chapter 1, and as I shared with you last week, I want to make sure that we understand that this is not just a Bible study, it's not just a teaching time, it's not about learning, it's not about a cognitive understanding, although that helps. Everything we're doing today has to be about Christ. Jesus said when, uh, when Peter made this affirmation, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter said that he will build his church. Christ's job to build each of us, his church, and in doing so, the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, the power of Satan can have no domain. They cannot prevail against his church. And as I reminded you last week, that's one of the most powerful verses that I've seen in the last couple of years from Colossians 2, 9 and 10. It talks about who Christ is and who we are coming to worship him. It says, for in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Christ that we see in Scripture, everything that the Father is, everything that the Son is, everything that Christ himself was embodied embodied in Jesus himself. When we see Jesus, we see the Father. What is the Father like? He's like Christ. What is the Holy Spirit like? He's another helper, just like Jesus. It's all in him. That's who Christ is. But the rest of this verse tells us about who we are. And it says, and you are complete, not in and of myself, but I am complete only in Christ. I'm not complete if I get the job, if I get the degree, if I move into the house, if this woman says yes and I marry her. I'm not complete anything outside of me. I am only complete in Christ. He's the only one that can resolve the aching and longing in every one of our hearts that I am complete in him, and who is Christ again, who is the head over all principality and power, all the created realm and principality and power have to deal with the demonic realm over everything evil in this world. Last week we talked about this 2240-hour prayer meeting that the early church had. And it begins in verse number 12, where it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is a, near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they, and we don't know how many people are in they at this point, we don't even know who makes up the they, but it says, and when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. And then the Holy Spirit wants to list from us part of the they. We don't know how many more there are, but he starts laying out for us, not 12, but 11 disciples. Wants us to make sure that Judas is now gone and everybody else is still there. It says, in the upper room they were staying, there was Peter and James and John and Andrew, 
There was Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, just 11. Okay, and what were these 11 doing? Talked about this last week. And these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. And then the Holy Spirit wants us to to let us know that this crowd's just a little bigger than this 11, because it talks about with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with with his brothers. Verse 15 tells us there was actually 120 that were there. There's 120 that include these 11, that include the couple of the women that we talked about last week, of course, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and of course, Jesus's earthly brothers. Now, part of of the Christian life and part of spiritual maturity is to be able to hear from God. Uh, There's this huge movement out there, and it's basically part of the Reformed movement that the pendulum swings so far over to the sufficiency of Scripture that the teaching is that you can't hear from God ever unless it comes through His Word. In other words, you can't get a personal word, you can't get a private word, God can't answer a question such as, should I take this job at Bank of America, or should I take a job with Capital One in McLean, Virginia, at their home office? God, I don't know what you want me to do, will you answer that for me? And unless God's word says, take the one in Bank of America, or gives you some principle that points in that direction, God doesn't speak. And it is a very, very powerful and popular movement uh, known by words like polemics and stuff of that nature that basically says, if it's not in God's word, God can't speak to you. Now, it is true that God will never speak to you contrary to his word. True? Well, you know what? I just want to marry this this unbeliever because he'll make me so happy. No. God's word clearly talks about, or I just want to do this or that. And if God always speaks according to his word, but he does speak outside of his word. We find that all through the New Testament. You know, Peter's, uh, Peter's up on the rooftop in Joppa, and the Holy Spirit speaks to him and says, hey, three men are coming to visit you. Um, I don't see, what chapter and verse is that? Don't, don't Peter, that, that was just for you. That's the Holy Spirit telling you this is going to happen. Acts chapter 13, the early church is getting together. They're praying about what missionaries to send out. And the Holy Spirit speaks to them and says, send out Saul and Barnabas to the mission which I have called them to do. Um, was that in Zechariah? I mean, where, where, where's that? No, no, that was, that was God speaking directly to people. Uh, Paul is on the Damascus Road, and all of a sudden he encounters Christ, and he sees Christ, and it wasn't like Jesus spoke Scripture to him. Jesus responded to him, it is, it is tough for you, Paul, to kick against the goats. Ananias is at home, probably in prayer, and God speaks to Ananias and says, I, Ananias, there's this man named Saul who's praying, I want you to go visit him. Ananias has a conversation with God. Well, wait a second, God. Uh, I've heard terrible things about this guy, this guy, like he, like he takes your children and, and, and puts them in prison and has some killed. No, you're going to go because he's a chosen instrument of mine and I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. That's not verse and chapter. God is speaking to an individual. And if you'll follow these in the book of Acts, you'll find that there's conversations that are taking place between God and you and me. And others. And the important part of of understanding this is that we have to wait for God to speak 
in order to move and be in his will. Now, sometimes his will is clear in scripture. We don't need a special affirmation of that. But sometimes, should I do this or should I do that? What I end up doing is looking at the the information that I have, sitting back and pondering, seeing what the, 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 the wise thing to do is, and going ahead and making that decision and then asking God to bless it. Have you ever done that? You ever done la-la land when you do that? Or sometimes God honors that. But, but presumption of knowing God's will is one thing, but presumption of assuming that God wants that will accomplished immediately right now and through you can lead into a world of hurt. Let me give you an example here. Verse 15 of Acts 1. It says, And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Now, I don't know what group that's involved with, so he kind of tells us that the disciples now numbered about a, 120. So there's 120 that's up in the upper room. We don't know what day this took place. We know Jesus was ascended on day one. We know Pentecost took place on day 10. And when day 10 took place, the Holy Spirit fell and the promise of the Father was given. At some point in time during this 10-day period, what we're going to read about now took place. I don't know if it was day one or day five. I can picture it more day, this is just me, you know, day four or five or something of that. And as we prayed for a while, time to get going. I mean, that's kind of how Peter is, you know, I, Lord, we've fished all day and caught nothing. What are we going to do? And and so it says, in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120 and said. Before we go any further, we need to understand who these groups of people are that are talking, who they're talking to, what designation they have, and get some idea about what it means to be a disciple or an apostle or one of the twelve. The word disciple here, of course, means a learner or a pupil. In other words, you can be a disciple of, of anybody. I'm, I'm learning this person. I've been trained by this person. This person is mentoring me. And, but in the New Testament, the word disciple refers, refers to an adherent who accepts the instruction given to him and makes it his rule of conduct. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, I'm going to listen to what he says. I'm going to follow his word. I'm going to model my life after him. But it's more than just holding on to some sort of philosophy like or Aristotle or something of that nature. Instead, it's, it's the living Lord Jesus. And so you'll find in Scripture the word disciple used a lot. You'll find the word apostle learned a lot. Are they the same thing? Can you be a disciple and an apostle? Is every apostle a disciple? But is every disciple an apostle? Does, were the apostle only the apostles only the twelve, or does it mean something different? And if you don't understand that, then some of the passages we're going to look at will be incredibly confusing. When it comes to disciples, I want to, I want you to I want you to follow how this kind of uh, how it flows in Scripture. We have disciples, we have apostles, and then we have a designated group in, in, uh, in the Scriptures called the Twelve. That's kind of easy to figure out. Um, the ministry of Jesus pretty much begins in, uh, right after the baptism of John. And these are the last verses in Matthew chapter 4. And look what it says. It says, that his fame went throughout all Syria, and they, don't know who they is, lost, saved, seekers, just people who were needy. It says, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. 
And then it says, great multitudes. These aren't disciples. These are just great groups of people followed him from various reasons, regions, from Galilee, from the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. They wanted to see who this Jesus was. He was popular. He was the newest thing in town. It doesn't, when it says great multitudes, it doesn't indicate an affinity towards him. It doesn't indicate their disciples. They're just following him. So you got this throng of people people that are following Christ. Very next verse, Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, verses 1 through 3. And seeing again this multitude of people, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Well, is that just the 12? Or is that learners and pupils. Is that group greater than the 12? Do you have this multitude of people here? And of this multitude of people, there's a segment, you know, I don't know, there's 3,000 people following him and 10% of those were followers or learners or disciples of Christ. So maybe 300 were there or maybe it's 5% and only 150. And of the 150, you later singled out just 12 and designated them apostles and don't know. Seated with his disciples, and he opened up his mouth and taught them, saying, and doesn't indicate when the word uses disciples like it does in Acts chapter 1, verse 15, whether it's just the 12. When the Lord wants us to know it's just the 12 disciples, he tells us. Watch this. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Well, who is this? Matthew? John, James, Philip are just part of the entourage, part of the people that were following Christ, part of the people that were, that were just with him during this time because they loved what he said, they believed in him, they were a disciple of his. Now, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. doesn't say it was only the 12. It's this multitude of people. Matthew chapter 9. And when he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, you know the story, my daughter has just died, but come that you may lay a hand on her and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him and so did his disciples. Every movie that we see, it's just the 12. Every time it's disciples mentioned in Scripture, all we see is the 12. They're going, and then they're going in here. Then he gets to the house. He sends everybody out, takes Peter and James and John, or maybe the inner circle in with him. And, and then we see this event take place and that event take place. And there's all this crowd of people that we assume don't follow Christ and aren't disciples because in every movie we've ever seen, disciples in our mind is limited to just the 12. Matthew chapter 10. Jesus wants us to know about the 12 now. And when he had called his, not the multitude anymore, not an unnamed, undefined group of disciples, but a specific group. When he called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits. He didn't give power to Billy Bob, you know, or, or to John, or, or he did to John, or to Frank, or, or somebody like that that's there. It was just to these 12 that I'm designating a select group. The power of unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kind of diseases, or sickness and all kind of diseases. This is Matthew 10.1. Matthew 10.2 says, and the name of these 12 apostles. So we've gone from disciples to 12 disciples. And in a space of two verses, Jesus now designates those 12 disciples as apostles. Well, what in the world does the word apostle mean? 
The word apostle, apostle means it's a messenger, it's a delegate, it's one sent forth from another with orders or instructions or an ambassador. In our church, everybody here is a disciple. We're all a disciple of Christ. We're all a disciple of his. But if somebody was going, if Tom and Jeannie decided that they were going to go down to Myrtle Beach as missionaries, they were, we had a, a message for them. They were going to go plant a church. They were going to go down and perform some sort of ministry or something of that nature. They would be sent. They would be like a delegate. They would have instructions they would go to. And in Jesus' time, they would be referred to by the Greek word apostolos or apostle. We kind of attach some sort of... Um, ecclesiastical position to that, that if you're an apostle, you're something special. And a lot of people, you know, instead of just being a pastor or teacher, you want to be an apostle, which means I'm, I have oversight of the, over churches. But that's, that's kind of what a bishop does. It's not really what, what an apostle does. Watch how it changes here. Were the apostles only the 12? Well, no, actually, uh, Acts 14.14 14 calls Paul and Barnabas apostles. Uh, they had that designation with them. Recognize these two guys? This is in Romans chapter 16, verse 7. These two guys you've never heard of are designated as apostles using that Greek word. We have Titus as an apostle. James, the Lord's brother, is known as an apostle because it was a message given to him as a delegate and ambassador of Christ. Jesus himself in Hebrews 3 is called an apostle. It's not an ecclesiastical title that no longer exists today. It's a word that designates someone who's had a message from Christ, someone who's been given a charge, who is going out and performing a ministry. We've got disciples, which are followers and pupils and learners of Christ. And then Jesus took these 12, but he didn't take these 12 just to teach them more and give them PhDs where everybody else just got bachelor's degrees. Instead, he taught them to send them out. Make sense? And designated those as the 12 disciples or apostles, or he refers to them as just the 12. Luke chapter 6, look at this. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. And from them, he chose 12 whom he named apostles. It ain't like, all right, where are my disciples? Ooh, there's only 12 of you. So I guess everybody's going to get chosen and I'm all going to name you apostles. It didn't work that way. There was a number obviously greater than the 12 that were following him. Otherwise, he wouldn't have to choose from that 12. Make sense? Okay. Then he called, Luke 9, his 12 disciples. Every time the Holy Spirit wants us to know that it's just the 12, he lets us know. There's no ambiguity in there. When he's talking about the disciples, it could be the 12, it could be others. It could be, uh, it could be Mary Magdalene. You know, she may be over there cooking while Jesus is teaching, but, but she's probably still there. It could be the two people we're going to find here in the book of Acts, uh, Barsabbas and Matthias. I mean, it could have been them, and we don't know. But when he wants us to know it's just the 12, when he tells them stuff only for the 12, he lets us know. And when he brings the 12 out, he always gives them something not reserved for the general population. Here, he gave them power and authority over demons, and, and then he sent them, what an apostle does, sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Verse 10, and the apostles, if you'll look in verse number 
chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, he calls his 12 disciples, gives them power, sends them out. By chapter 10, or by verse 10, they come back now from their missionary journey. He refers to them as apostles. When they returned, they told him what they had done, and he took them and went aside privately, just for the 12, into a deserted place belonging to the city of Bethsaida. Luke 17, then he said to his disciples, this is the big group of people here, to his disciples, and this is a powerful teaching. It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through they do come. For it would be better for him that a millstone was hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than he should offend one of these little ones. Heavy message here. He continues, take heed yourself. For if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. So there's this teaching that's gone on that violates everything they've ever known. It's a very deep teaching spoken to all his disciples who were there, but it's only the apostles the 12 that then come to him, take it to heart and say, increase our faith. Can't handle this. This is, this, is, this is powerful. And then Jesus gives them the teaching about faith and of a mustard seed and, and on and on and on. See the distinction? When Jesus is getting ready to be crucified and be betrayed, he says, when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12, not disciples, not just this generic term, but the 12 apostles sat with him. And there he said to them, with fervent desire, I desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. There was not an entourage of 120 people out there. This was not a New Life 91.9 concert where there's 6,000 people or 10,000 people. He just took the 12 and wanted to let us know it's just them. Just the 12. Matthew 10, and when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power. Matthew 10, 2, he named those 12 now apostles, a separate group from disciples. Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, now these 12, who he's already referred to in chapter, verse 1 as disciples and verse 2 as apostles, Jesus sent out, is what you do with an apostle. You send them out as a delegate and as an ambassador, giving them certain instructions. Matthew 11, 1, it came to pass when he had finished commanding his 12 disciples, who he named apostles, he then departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Matthew 20, as he was going to Jerusalem, he took not the group, but the 12 disciples aside. Well, if it was only them on the road, why would he take them aside? He's followed by the group of disciples, and Jesus wants us to know that he's cutting out from the herd just that 12, because I have something I want to tell just you guys that are going to stick with me, just you guys that are when I'm building the church on, the ones that I have chosen, and the truth that he tells them about what is about the crucifixion and the resurrection, stuff the others couldn't handle. Behold, we are going to Jerusalem. This isn't for everybody. It's not for public consumption. It's just for the 12. And the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And on the third day, he will rise again. I mean, they didn't even get it. This is not something for the the vast majority of people. Mark 3, almost done with these. And he went up into the mountain and called to them and called to him those he himself wanted. And they came to him and he appointed 12. 
appointed just the 12, that they might be with him and that he might again send them out to preach and have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. Verse chapter 4, but when he was alone, those that were around him, we would call those just the generic disciples, with the 12. Two groups here, the disciples and the ones I have called out. Mark 9, and he sat down, called the 12 and said to them, Hard teaching. Anybody to be first, he shall be servant of all. On and on and on. There's, there's different groups of people here that are following Christ. There's a multitude of just mass people. Of that multitude, there's a smaller group, and that smaller group are known as disciples. And inside the disciples, there are, there are even smaller groups. There's a group called apostles, and inside the apostles, there's a group called the twelve. Jesus designated all the twelve to be apostles, but there were other people other than the apostles, other than the twelve that were apostles. And then, of course, there's the there's like a big funnel. There's the disciples. Every uh, every member of the twelve was also an apostle, who was also by definition a disciple. But if you're an apostle, that doesn't necessarily make you a member of the twelve, like Barnabas and and Titus and some of the others. But it still makes you a disciple of Christ, right? Why are we going through this? Why does this seem so important? Let me just give you two more verses and I'll tell you. This is the account that Paul is sharing about Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. For I first delivered to you what I also received, the gospel according to Paul, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen. By who? First of all, Peter, by Cephas, and then by the twelve. I got that. That's the upper room thing. You know, that happened at night when Jesus came walking through the wall. He was seen by Peter. Makes sense because the angel told them to go tell his disciples, especially Peter, that he is raised from the dead. He met with Peter and then he met with the 12. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, which we would call just disciples. After that, he was seen by James and then by the apostles, who are a subgroup of the disciples but they're not part of the 12. And last of all, he was seen by me, Paul, writing this as one born in due time. Which brings us to Acts chapter 1, verse 15. Because Peter now is beginning to, to, to make a decision on who of the, of the disciples are now to be included in part of the 12. And watch what happens here. To bring you up to date, this is exactly what the church was supposed to be focusing on. These were the last words that are written by Luke in the book of Luke. He says, Behold, I send you the promise of my Father upon you. That's going to come, but I want you to tarry. The word tarry means to sit or settle down, to cause to rest and wait. I want you to chill. I want you to kick back. I don't want you to do nothing. I want you just to tarry until I give you the promise of my Father, till the Holy Spirit comes upon you, till I tell you the stuff that I've been promising you ever since John chapter 14. Don't do anything. Tarry and wait. Don't worry about evangelism. Don't worry about building a church. Don't write any books. Don't do any podcasts. Don't do any YouTube videos. Don't do anything. Just wait. 
tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Then everything changes. You won't be fleshly. You'll be moving in the spirit. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. We see that in the beginning few verses in Acts chapter 1. And it says, and they worshiped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And then Luke tells us at the end of Luke, kind of jumps ahead to Acts chapter 2, and it says, and they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God, which is what happens in Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47. This is kind of a cliff note of what they did. They worshiped him, yes, Lord. And they came home, back to the room with great joy, Acts tells us they continually with her in prayer with one accord in supplication until, verse 15, watch this. In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, uh, the number of names was about 120. And he said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled. I admire Peter for this because I would have never taken these two psalms and come up with the conclusion he did. This was something that was God-ordained. This scripture had to be fulfilled. True. It does have to be fulfilled. It's a prophetic statement in the Old Testament in the psalms about Jesus Christ. The question is, does it have to be fulfilled right here and right now? I'm telling you. This has been my Achilles heel in my spiritual life. I see the need. I see what needs to be done. I have scripture that backs it up showing that, yes, this is God's will, but it's not necessarily, I mean, it's God's will that it to be done, but is it God's will for me to do it right here and right now, most of the time in my own strength and in my own power? Or do I tarry? Do I wait until I am endued with power on high for the Holy Spirit to give direction, to speak to me regarding it in His timing? And I can honestly tell you that every time that has happened, the roadblocks, the, the, the obstacles have just crumbled like the walls of Jericho because God's in the middle of this. Rather than me trying to knock on doors, the Lord isn't ready to open. You've seen the scar on my forehead? 93 stitches. I tell people it's not the truth. It kind of is. I tell people that I got this scar from banging my head against doors. God wasn't ready to open yet. You know, I'd rather do something today than wait and do something tomorrow. And what, I wear that like a badge of honor? That's sin. That's carnality. That's lack of maturity. That's exactly what these guys did. Yes, Peter, the scripture had to be fulfilled. But by you and right now, think about it. Holy Spirit hadn't even come yet. They didn't even know who the Holy Spirit was. They had not been dude on the power from on high. How were they to make a spiritual decision when the Spirit had yet to even possess them? They're still waiting on that promise from the Father. They were told to tarry, to sit down, relax, do nothing, chill, rest, leave it in my hands, and yet they didn't. The Holy Spirit, the, the promised one, hadn't even been realized in their midst yet. That doesn't happen until Acts chapter 2. But just like Steve... And probably just like many of you, I've got to get this done, God, and I've got to get it done now. And I've waited on you long enough. It's now my opportunity. You need to bless my efforts. It's not the way it works. 
In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, about 120, and said, Men and brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled. We got that. But what scripture is that? Oh, regarding it, the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. We've, we have a hole in our group. There was 12 of us, and 35 days ago, 38 days ago, 33 days ago, not really sure, Judas betrayed us, betrayed our Lord. And now they're, we do, it's, it's 11's just wrong number. We need a 12. We need a, a complete number. Jesus talked about what was waiting for us is sitting on the 12 thrones of Israel. So we got to fulfill this. The scripture has to be fulfilled. We need some help. And it has to be done about Judas. Well, if you look at verse 18 and 19, you'll see what, what the Holy Spirit is doing here through Luke is just answering our question about Judas. Oh man, I ain't thought about Judas since he betrayed Jesus and went out and hanged himself and threw the money down and all that kind of, what happened to Judas? And so the Holy Spirit is telling us with this parenthetical parent, this statement in parentheses. <laughs> it says, now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. Appreciate you letting me know that. And, and it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem that this field is called in their own language, Ekel Damah, that is the field of blood. All right, so, so Peter stands up, not part of Peter's discussion, but just kind of an, an editorial note the Holy Spirit gives us through the pen of Luke to let us know historically what happened to, to Judas. We now kind of understand that, and we pick this back up in Peter's discussion. Scripture had to be fulfilled, and, and, and what, what Scripture is that, Peter? Well, it's this one. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. This is not Psalm 26, verses 3 and 4. This is Psalm 69, verse 25, and Psalm 109, verse 8. This is like taking this passage and this patches and slapping them together. This is a prophetic passage, and this is a prophetic passage. I would not know that unless the Holy Spirit spoke to me, and I believe the Holy Spirit spoke to, to Peter to be able to do this. And so Peter, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has determined this is why Judas has to be replaced. It is God's will for Judas to be replaced. And so therefore, we're standing on the authority of Scripture that this has to be done. But now, and by you, and this is where the problem begins. I, I see it in the Word, Lord. I see it uh, in, in my own life, and, and this has to be done. And, and God, you know, raise up somebody to do it. And if you don't, then I'm going to do it. And Lord, I'm going to do it today unless you tell me otherwise. And, and we charge ahead sometimes without the anointing of God. Have you ever done that? And I have. And sometimes it takes years to correct those well-intentioned mistakes. The problem begins with the word, therefore. Peter stands up and he builds his case. My brethren, Holy Spirit has said through the prophet David, all true. The scripture has to be fulfilled, all true. Concerning Judas, all true. Here's the scripture, got it. But does he want you to fulfill it right now? Did God specifically tell you, Peter, it's your job right now during those 10 days when your command is to chill and sit back and do nothing to make a monumental decision about the future of the church? Is that really your call? 
Is this from the Holy Spirit or is this a conclusion based on the wisdom of man? And I can see me in this group. You know, we need to do something about this. Yeah, well, you know what? I was reading in the passage, Psalm 69. I was reading the passage, another psalm. Put those things. Yes, that's exactly what God is saying. We got to do something. We got to do something now. We're handicapped. We're missing something. And, you know, instead of praying, God, what is your will concerning this? We're going to give God a choice and make him choose our choice. I want you to watch what didn't happen here. And I want you to watch what happens every time God speaks to someone. He clearly lets us know that's what's taking place. Acts chapter 4. Then the Holy Spirit said to Philip, there's no ambiguity here. God said to Philip, Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. Okay, God, I am. Takes off and does that. God speaks. Acts chapter 10. While Peter thought about the vision... Gosh, I wonder what that means. The Spirit said to him, behold, three men are coming. Acts chapter 13, they were ministering and they were fasting. And the Holy Spirit said into a group of leaders in the church that they all agreed upon, somehow all heard the same voice of the Holy Spirit, had it all confirmed to them in unanimous consent. Set apart for me these two guys, which in ministry what I've called them to do. Acts chapter 16 They're wanting to go this way. We put our heads together. Hey, what's the plan, Paul? Man, we're going to go this way. And the Spirit says, no, I will not permit you. What what does that mean? He crippled them? You know, a big boulder fell on the road. He couldn't get around it. I mean, what does it mean? It means he obviously communicated to them and said, that's not my will. I want you to go this way. Every time we find in Scripture that the Holy Spirit speaks, and and I could have cited dozens of Old Testament passages, he speaks. This is what God said. You stand up with the authority and say, God spoke to me, and here's what he said. But not here. There's no indication that the Holy Spirit spoke to them regarding this matter. As a matter of fact, the Holy Spirit hadn't even fallen yet. I mean, they didn't even know what the Holy Spirit was. It was just some sort of teaching that Jesus had. That, that It didn't happen until Acts chapter 2 when they would change. And then Peter stands up and preaches a 176-word sermon. If you take out all the Scripture verses, 176 words, which I could do in about a minute. 176 words and 3,000 people are saved just like that. I think what Peter did is commit the sin that I have committed more times than I want to admit. Um, I can't tell you the number of times that I've come to Karen and I've gone, wow, that didn't work out. And her response is, why'd we do it? It's always a we thing with her because I drag her along with me. And my response is always the same. I don't know. It seemed like a good idea at the time. It seemed like something that needed to be done. I mean, it seemed like life would be better doing it. And so I took it upon myself to do it. I even prayed. But what I prayed was not, God, do you want me to be involved in this? What I prayed was, God, I'm doing this anyway. Will you bless it? You ever been there? Because I know better, don't you? Than God himself. Therefore, look what he says here. Of these men who have accompanied us, the twelve. All the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. As, as Peter, excuse me, uh, when was that exactly? You said that Jesus went in and around like for three, three and a half years. What was the beginning time and what was the ending time? Oh, okay. Um, 
beginning at the baptism of John till just what happened a few days ago when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Who says? Do you realize that the Bible records everything accurately? Therefore, the Bible is true. But, not, but if somebody in the Bible recorded accurately says something that is not true, like King Nebuchadnezzar, look at this land that I've created for my own glory. No, that wasn't really true, and you paid a deal penalty for that. But what he said was recorded accurately. The fact is, as Peter stood up, it doesn't indicate under the unction of the Holy Spirit, and he laid down a rule, and the rule is that all 11 of us still left obviously have had to been with Jesus from the baptism of John, because that's the requirement we're putting on the new guy. So anybody else in this group showing you that the word disciples means more than just 12. There were people that were there, that 120, who had been following them for three and a half years, following Jesus, just not selected to become part of the 12. He says, one of those people will have to fulfill Judas's place. Again, Peter, who said, uh, God, did God tell you that? I mean, if God told you that, I'm in, because I trust you. I trust that you hear from God. Who am I? But, uh, or is it just you guys? Did, did your leaders of the 120, did you guys come together and come up with this idea yourself? Because we have to have this scripture fulfilled. Watch this. Watch this. It appears, from what Peter said, the 12, among others in the room, were with Jesus from the baptism of John. True? Okay. This is Matthew. Jesus was baptized by John in Matthew chapter 3. Peter, Andrew, James, and John were called in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew was called in Matthew chapter 9. And the 12 were appointed in Matthew chapter 10. Now, yes, there's an indication in John that, that maybe Peter, James, John, and Andrew are kind of all there in the very beginning. Okay, but Matthew, the tax collector? Probably not. Especially when you look at five chapters between calling of some and calling of another. And when he called Matthew, he didn't call Matthew hanging around with him. Matthew was sitting at his tax desk, despised by these other disciples collecting money. Yeah, but that was just a Matthew account. Let's look at Mark. Uh, John baptized Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verse 9. In Mark chapter 1, verse 16, right after that, you get Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Okay, I can kind of see that together. But Mark's, Matthew's not called to, to Mark chapter 2, total separate event that takes place, and then the disciples aren't singled out until Mark chapter 3. Luke. Luke is uh, John. Jesus is baptized by John in Luke chapter 3. Peter, Andrew, James, and John aren't called until two chapters later in Luke chapter 5. Matthew's called, same chapter, number of verses later, in another town. And then, of course, the 12 aren't appointed until the very next chapter. It appears, by just looking at this, that of the 12 that were there, that the requirement was that, that, that this new guy has got to fit these requirements that possibly not all the disciples themselves fit. If you really think about it, and again, Jesus can do anything he wants, and we, you can argue the other way too, but if you really think about it, Matthew, following Christ since the baptism of John, that means he left his home, that means he left his business, just like 
Andrew and Peter and James and John had to leave their business and their father in the boat and and follow Jesus. But Matthew didn't do that because every time we meet Matthew, he's still doing business. Know what I mean? So it almost seems like that they're laying on a requirement for the new guys that the old guys didn't even have to meet. Therefore, it says, of the men who have accompanied us all the time which the Lord Jesus went in and went out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must be a witness with us of his resurrection. And they, and my question is always, who's they? Is it, was it a vote? Did they all get together and say, okay, of the guys that are here, how many people here have been with us like since the baptism of John? Well, uh, nine of you. Okay, uh, guys, y'all come over here and uh, then just submit your resumes. We're going to have a meeting. We're going to interview you and, and come up with, with or maybe, maybe. How many people have been here that long? There are only two. Okay, so obviously these are the two guys. It'd been so much easier if it was just one, then we just choose one, but it was actually two or maybe more than that. So it says they proposed two. And who are these guys? Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, is where I named my own son, Justice wants to know how he got his name. Well, they chose somebody to be a disciple, and you lost. That's, why, that's what I tell him. And Matthias, because he didn't, I didn't want to name you Matthias. And they, they, or was it the Holy Spirit? Doesn't say. They chose these two people. And obviously, these two people were with Jesus from the very beginning. And obviously, they were probably part of the 70. Because if you remember, Jesus sent his 12 disciples out two by two. And in another time in Luke, he sent them 70 of them out in groups of two. So there's more than just the 12. He probably was in that group. But the fact is, after these guys come to be part of the 12, we never hear another word about them again. Nothing in Paul's letters, greet so-and-so and so-and-so. Nothing at the Jerusalem council where all of a sudden there's this big debate with all the Christian leaders and you know all the other disciples are there. Never hear a word about them. Again, we don't know anything about them. Seems strange, doesn't it? That somebody that important to fulfill Judas's place would just drop off the, uh, the edge into the world in anonymity. But you don't understand, Steve. They prayed. They pray. Well, sure they pray. They pray just like I pray. God, I've decided what I want us to do. You tell me what direction I'm supposed to take. Look how they prayed. And they prayed and said, oh, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Yes, you do. Now show us which of these two people you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship in which Judas was transgression fell that he might go to his own place. I'm presenting two choices to you and you, God, tell me which one they are. Have you ever done this? Have you ever come up with something that you wanted to do and you came up with two options or three options that were never God's will in the first place and you asked him, which one of these do you want? A, B, or C? And we got to figure out some way for that to happen. I have peace with A or the circumstances look better with B or, or my needs are melt with C. But we, we, we haven't asked God what his will is. We have presented to God presumptuously what we think his will is based on our own circumstances and then tried to get him to choose. And look how they chose. And they cast lots. And the lot fell on one of them and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Okay, so I've got this square cube and I've got half the... uh, 
I've got half the panels on it painted black and half the panels painted white. And so I'm going to roll this this cube, this dice with only two options on it. And God, you're sovereign. You know, I don't know what your sovereign will. I'm not willing to wait and determine what your sovereign will is. So this is something we need to get done right now. So I'm going to throw this dice and whichever one it turns up, obviously, God, you're directing it and you show me which one it is. So I throw the dice and it shows up on on Matthias. It shows up white. And all of a sudden he's numbered with the eleven. Okay, but what other outcome could there have been? I mean, you're putting God in a situation where what if his answer was neither? I have something even better planned. You're taking matters into your own hands. I mean, was it supposed to just stop on its edge like this? I mean, if if you and I were doing the same thing and flipping a coin, and we flipped the coin and it fell like this, you know what we'd do? We'd flip it again. You know, we'd flip it again. Well, obviously, that was really weird. Wow, never seen that happen twice in a row. You know, and eventually God's fine. You know, we'd, we'd flip it again, or we'd come up with something else. We'd spin the dial or, or you know, that guy, I mean, we'd do something like that. How, I mean, how, how is God supposed to communicate them to them what it's supposed to be? You, you're very, very dangerous when you try to determine God's will by circumstances or by feelings or by setting out fleeces, it just feels right, then it's probably wrong. You know, if it feels, if it feels good in the flesh, it, it, that's not the issue. The issue is, I mean, sin feels good in the flesh. The issue is your spirit. And your spirit's not based on feelings. Your spirit is based on a, a, a communication, an interaction, a, a peace that you have that Christ says only comes from him. Only comes from him. Well, I've asked God three times, and his answer was no. So I remember a long time ago, I was watching All in the Family with Archie Bunker. You old guys like me know what that is. And he was playing solitaire. This is before computer solitaire. And he, he goes, well, I gave the deck third time, so now I cheat. You know, three times, now I cheat. I'm telling you, that's, that's kind of how we view our spiritual life. The issue isn't which one of the people we have chosen, have you chosen God? The issue is, should we be entering into this area ourselves? Or should we wait until God tells us specifically what his will is? The scripture says, God, that, we, that Judas needs to be replaced. Well, you don't think God knows that? I know, but you're not working fast enough. We, we want to push your hand. I mean, we have a need. We want it done now. Well, you don't think God sees that need? You don't think it's God's responsibility to replace one of the people he chose rather than us? And I see myself and Peter all the time taking it upon ourselves to make it easy for God. Really, it just makes it easy for us. And we do this with so many decisions in our life. Where we're going to live, where we're going to go to school, who we're going to marry, what kind of job we're going to have, whether I should hang around with these people, whether I should watch this or do this or buy this or go that way. I mean, we spend all our time with the therefores rather than asking those questions, should I even do this at all? Well, if I waited on God, I would just sit in my room all day because he never tells me nothing. That's not his fault. You realize that, don't you? That's not his fault. It's ours. So instead, I'm going to just go out there and you know, shipwreck my life. Okay, that was, that was interesting. So um, 
why is this such a big deal? I mean, you've taken an hour of my life and showed me that in Acts chapter 1 was probably not a spiritual event, it was a carnal event. I feel kind of uncomfortable with that, but, but why, why would you even do that? Why, why was it such a big deal that they went out and, and chose, um, and chose uh, these two guys? Well, because I believe God had his own choice in mind. One of the requirements of being part of the 12 is you had to see Jesus. By the way, how many people in the New Testament that you know after Jesus was resurrected that didn't see him before saw Jesus as recorded in the Scripture? you know? Paul. Apostle Paul. Now, John, of course, saw him. He saw him in Revelation, but John was already one of the 12. It was the Apostle Paul. And God chose him, and God used him. And I believe that was God's choice all along. God was waiting. God was preparing. He was going to fulfill in that 12 uh, an element in them that the others didn't have. They were so Jewish-oriented. They were so Jerusalem-bound. They weren't about to leave because their whole world was just tied up in Jerusalem. But Paul wanted to add another gift into the mix. I mean, the Lord wanted to add Paul another gift into the mix who had different skill sets and a different kind of person and didn't different spiritual gifts that would expand the church to where he wanted to go. And so he met Paul in his dramatic way that I don't see in Scripture him meeting anybody else. Now, I had a real dramatic um, salvation experience with the Lord, yet um, I didn't fall off a donkey and hear his voice and was blind for three days. Were you? It was a spoken word. It was a discussion. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Oh, other people heard the sound, but they didn't hear the voice. And he was blind. And for three days, he just thought about his inadequacies and everything that he, he built his life upon, like a house of cards tumbling. And then Ananias comes after a conversation with God that didn't take place here, lays his hands on Paul. The scales fall from his eyes. Paul is energized, filled with the Holy Spirit, and goes out preaching, and people want to kill him. Do you remember? And for the rest of Paul's life, He was constantly attacked by you're not one of the 12. You're not really an apostle. You're not one of them because they're of Jerusalem and you're, uh, you know, go to the Gentiles and you're not one of them. And, and, and the fact is it was because I believe because of this error that the church made that Paul bore immense pressure to have to continually prove himself. I am an apostle. Doesn't matter what they say. Doesn't matter what they do. Christ chose me. I am an apostle. Every time we see one of Paul's letters, he talks about the fact I'm a bondservant called to be an apostle. Peter, Peter, an apostle. Uh, Paul, I'm called to be an apostle. I am. This is what God has done for me. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Listen to this. I, am I not an apostle? You're obviously saying I'm not. Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord, which is one of the requirements of being an apostle? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I'm not an apostle to them, I certainly am to you. He's sitting here trying to defend it because of an error that the church made. Galatians, look at this. Paul, an apostle. All right. I know I don't have my papers from Jerusalem. I know they didn't lay their hands on me and give me their approval. But my apostleship is not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. 
First Timothy chapter two, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in good time in due time for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle. No, really, I'm speaking the truth. I'm not lying. Isn't that amazing? Paul has to defend himself like this. I am an apostle. God did show himself to me. I am that person. And Paul considered himself of the apostles the least of all because he persecuted the church. Now listen, the right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing. You realize that? It's the wrong thing. I mean, well, I, I, I want to have a wife. Yeah, I know. Doesn't God know that too? I know, but I want it now. So the, the relationships that you have now maybe with the right woman at the wrong time, cannot get God's glory and God's honor. We have to wait on his timing. Why? Because we're bondservants. We're we're slaves of him. And his job is to speak to us and direct us, not for us to decide all the decisions in our life and the ones that seem to be going south, we ask him to bless. It's exactly the opposite. I'm always amazed. I'll go to Jack in a Box, healthy food. I'll get four tacos, curly fries, and have the audacity to ask the Lord to bless this food to my body. You know? And if I was really listening, his answer would be, I can't. Best way to bless it is to get out of here and go to eat a salad. You know what I mean? But we, we're presumptuous in so many things in our life. Part of the Christian life, the hard part of the Christian life in our microwave society is to wait for God to do what his will is and to quit fretting about it or quit trying to make it happen, even if he seems like it takes forever. Relationships have not been put back together. Things don't seem to be getting any better. God, how long? How long? How long? Well, that's up to me, Steve. It's up to me. Your job is to love me, to worship me, and to go obediently where I've called you to go and say what I've told you to say. I'm to be a mouthpiece of Christ. We sing the song, you know, these are his hands and his feet and his mouth, yet I spend all my time using his hands, doing my stuff, speaking words that really don't belong to him, and going places he doesn't want me to go. And then I wonder why I get myself in a jam when all I have to do is do the hardest thing for me is to wait on him. To wait on him. This is where faith and maturity comes in. This is what grows you into a a man and a woman of God. Now, I want to tell you one quick story, and, and, and then I'm going to close. I was, um, I was living in Pigeon Forest, Tennessee, and it was, it was really a high point in my spiritual life. God was showing me stuff I had about faith that I had never understood before. My wife and I were running a crisis pregnancy center totally by faith, you know, kind of like George Mueller did, and God was blessing, and, and incredible things were happening. And, but I was called to be a pastor. I wasn't really called to, to be the director of a crisis pregnancy center. And um, um, so uh, we were attending Liberty Baptist Church, this independent, fundamental, premillennial, 1611 King James-only church, uh, which isn't exactly who I am. But uh, they were great people, and I learned a lot, and I loved them. We had some issues about some things, but it didn't really matter. And, and I was feeling this hunger, this desire 
you know, I need to, I need, I need to move on, God. The truth of the matter is, is I had become so arrogant in my spiritual life and relying so much on my natural abilities rather than the Spirit of God that God said, I can't use you like this, and so I'm just going to pick you up and set you on a shelf. And He did for a number of years, and it was, a, it was a trying time for me. It was a, um, it was actually it was a wonderful time. It was a sifting for me, and and it made me value Him rather than doing it in my own flesh. Um, and so uh, I had decided that, um, well, I was going to uh, just go get a church, go pastor somewhere. So I, back then, uh, they didn't have these big, you know, headhunter kind of church deals where they have now where you basically send them a resume and they pay people commissions to find you churches. What you would do is you would send your resume to the various directors of missions and all these adjoining counties and associations, and, and they would basically... Um, um, you know, find a church and kind of hook you up together, and that's kind of how it works. So I went through the process of doing, knowing it was wrong. Man, I knew, I knew, I knew it was wrong. I knew it was the wrong thing to do. I knew God wanted me exactly where I was, but I couldn't see, I couldn't see the end result, and everything was foggy, and I had a desire, and God, God, you called me into the ministry, and God, you given me a gift of preaching, and this is what you wanted me to do. And so it seemed logical to me that I needed to move out in that direction. God tried to, tried to warn me. Um, every morning I would go down to the Burger King down there by Ogles Water Park, which I'm not even sure is there, and it's not there anymore. And uh, I would study, and I was studying First Timothy, and I'm reading, and uh, it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. And I stopped right there, and I said, Lord, I really need you to... I don't want to make a mistake here. I really need you to speak to me and to let me know what your will is. Verse 3, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in, and the word says Ephesus, but I heard this word in my head that said Pigeon Forge. And I just sat up in the middle of this booth at Burger King, drinking a massive diet Pepsi. (laughs) Stay in Ephesus. Stay in Pigeon Forge. And I knew God was speaking to me. I knew he was giving me a private word through his word, I wasn't interested, didn't even listen. And so I um, went home and decided I was going to move in this direction. Karen was, not, um, Karen was not enthusiastic about it, but my wife has the kind of demeanor that she will share her feelings with me and let it lie and then uh, uh, let me go out and bust my head on the pavement myself and then come back and go, seemed like a good idea at the time. You know, and I knew it was... I, I knew that just works better with my personality. Um, I, knew, uh, I knew it was the wrong thing to do. And, and so I was, I, I just had this desire. And I remember um, the pastor didn't have an associate. They had an associate pastor, and, but they didn't. And, and you know, and, and this church wouldn't listen to any music that had any, any drum beat at all. I mean, it was a really a fundamental Baptist church. And, and uh, you know, I didn't use the King James. And I mean, there's a million different reasons why this would never happen. And so I remember. God, okay. And I had this attitude. God, okay, fine. You know, listen, if, if you want me to stay at, at, at liberty, then what's the most impossible thing I can think of that would satisfy my felt need? Uh, you know what? Have Pastor Settle asked me to be his associate pastor. And then I said, ah, forget it, God. That ain't never going to happen. I mean, that ain't never going to happen. This was on a Friday night. 
On Saturday morning, uh, some of us men got together for a little prayer time with the pastor, and then they sent them off on this bus route. In other words, this church that they still do, dude, you know, go picks up kids and bring us to children's church, bus route and everything. And I didn't do the bus route thing. And so I'm, I'm sitting, I know I've told many of you this story before. So I'm sitting now at the table. He's at that end of the table. These other men are here. I'm at this end of the table. And, uh, the, uh, I told the pastor, I said, uh, hey, listen, uh, when we finish, I, um, I, I need to tell you something. Because I was going to tell him I was leaving. And I know it was going to hurt him. I know it was going to crush him. I know it was going to, because we were, I think we were doing a youth at the time. I mean, it was, it was really just, and it was just a selfish thing. I think Karen was even doing the, playing the, the uh, keyboard or the piano at that time. And, and the pastor looked at me and go, yeah, well, I want to talk to you about something too. He knows. He knows I'm leaving. And I started getting angry. You know, he's going to try to put this guilt trip on me. He's going to try to tell me this is not God's will. Man, I'm telling you what, I can't wait. And I just seethed. I was just angry, just seething at this guy. Because he obviously had read my mail or, or whatever. And anyway, when it, was, when it was all over, all the guys were sent out. It was just me and the pastor. We went out on the carport. And the pastor said, um, hey, Steve, what did you want to talk to me about? And I said, no, you first. Praise God, I did. And I'm leaning up against the wall. And he goes, listen, I'm, I know... I, I know this is probably seems strange to you, but I've really been praying about this. And, and I know we're so different and I know we see things differently, but uh, I really think we complement each other. And I think the, the church can really use it. And I don't know if you would even consider coming on board and being my associate. Honest truth. My legs got weak and I found myself sliding down that, the brick wall. You know, and I st- stood back up and wow. Okay. You know, and God worked this incredible miracle out because it wasn't his timing. Now, now, did I leave that church? Sure I did. That's why I'm here. I mean, it was God's will eventually for me to leave. I wasn't supposed to be the associate there forever. But at that particular point in time, even though I had justified it in Scripture, at that particular point in time, it would have been a terrible thing for me to do. After he told me that and I, I accepted it, he looked at me. He goes, what did you want to talk to me about? And I said, oh, it's nothing. Don't worry about it. It's, it's fine. It's fine. And to be honest with you, it was the most growth that I had as a man, spiritually, ever, was being in that church. And I was in that church until it was time to move on. And when I moved on, it was a time where they sent you off, and it was a great thing. And it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't painful. It wasn't hurtful because it was on his timing. His timing. Spiritual maturity comes in when we realize that even though we may determine it's God's will, we have to make sure it's God's will for us at that particular time. Otherwise, it's sin. Make sense? Now, I'm sharing this with you because what I'm hoping is that in decisions that you are making, the decisions that you have made, that you will pause and you will stop and you will determine, God, is this will for my life right now? And if so, I'm in. And if not, stop and wait and let him open the doors, because God is honored in that immensely. Amen? Let me pray.